Ready to form Voltron! This is a job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! I'm the Doctor. everybody and welcome back to Charlie's Geek Cast. I'm your host Charlie Niemeyer and once again we're looking at issues of the comics inspired by the various DC animated series. Last time out we looked at the first six issues of Batman Adventures and this time out we're going to be looking at the next six issues plus a special magazine. So sit back, relax, and after this promo we'll get started. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay, you guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Batman Adventures number 7 was released on March 2nd, 1993, with a cover date of April 1993. The title of the story was Raging Lizard, written by Kelly Puckett, penciled by Mike Parabek, inked by Mike or by Rick Burchett, lettered by Tim Harkins, and colored by Rick Taylor, with editing by Scott Peterson. Our story begins at the office, or maybe hideout, of a mobster named Antoine, a big-time mobster out of Chicago named, get this, Mobster has come to Gotham and Batman wants him. After watching Batman quickly dispense of his guards with a bit of a smirk on his face, Antoine says he knows nothing and to check with Tommy Tubits. Tommy is currently in an underground wrestling match watching Pretty Boy Tibbets 
lose his match to Killer Croc before the match even begins. After the fight, Croc's manager tells him that a mobster, that mobster is in town and has brought his own fighter so he can get a piece of the action. The fighter's name is The Masked Marauder, the only fighter to not only defeat Croc, but also basically make him plead for mercy. Croc is ready to leave town, but his manager talks him into staying and fighting. Meanwhile, Mobster loans his bodyguards to Tommy since they know Batman is looking for him. Batman finds Tommy and makes quick work of the guards, and Tommy tells him about the fights. Later, after spending the day practicing against several lesser fighters, Croc is ready to take on Masked Marauder. As the fight begins, Batman arrives, making quick work of all of the Mobster's men. Seeing this, Marauder knocks out Croc and takes on the Dark Knight. While Marauder literally throws Batman around, Croc's manager revives Croc and reminds him that this is his chance at revenge. With a second win, Croc takes on Marauder, leaving Batman to apprehend, mo apprehend Mobster. After Croc manages to take down Marauder, Batman lets him go since he has what he came for. Okay, now on the show, I'm not sure anyone has was ever strong enough to actually take down Croc in a straight fight. Except for Bane, and he was using Venom at the time. So having him go down so easily to the Masked Marauder seems to be a bit of a stretch. But maybe there's an insinuation that he's on some kind of a steroid. We just They just don't come out and say it, and I'm not smart enough to pick up on it. Also, and I did look it up. There really was a professional wrestler who went by the name The Masked Marauder, but only for a short time. And had many other names too. But that was uh, the fake WWE, WWF kind of wrestling. And this seems to be more like MMA. There's actual body damage. The art on this is good. It'll get better later, but it's pretty good here. The Parabek style is there, but his adapt adaptation of the established characters was a little off, especially Batman. This will also get better. But I'm not sure how much of that is Parabek actually getting better or how much is Rick Perchett uh, doing more to correct the art as time goes on. Either way, I like how Puckett lets Parabek tell the story with his art at times. And I like how Batman actually has a bit of a smirk as though he's enjoying himself. Now, I mentioned this is March 93. Uh, this is the month that Nightfall begins... Uh, just for a reference of where we are in the DCU, this is the month that Nightfall begins in the Batman books, and Superman is still dead, but the Team Luther and Supergirl special came out this month. Plus, the return of Barry Allen is nearing its end. Moving on to the next issue, Batman Adventures number 8 had a release date of April 6, 1993, and a cover date of May 1993. This was the month where, uh, let's see, The Atom had a special issue put out. Nightfall continues. This is where, uh, this is the month where Killer Croc actually meets up with Bane. Uh, also, we have the last issue of Justice Society of America. Uh, Superman starts to re starts his return in Adventures of Superman 500 this month. Looks like we get the end of the Return of Barry Allen storyline. We also get the debut of the four Superman, Superman in the four main Superman titles, uh, Last Son of Krypton, Cyborg Superman, Man of Steel, and Don't Call Him Superboy. In this issue, though, the title of the story is Larceny, My Sweet, written by Kelly Bo 
written by Kelly Puckett, penciled by Mike Paraback, inked by Rick Burchett, lettered by Tim Harkins, and colored by Rick Taylor, and edited by Scott Peterson. While driving around with her cameraman looking for a story to cover, Summer Gleason responds to a call about a robbery. Batman is already on the scene, but the incredibly strong robber uses one of his extremely large sacks of money to slam Batman into a file cabinet, knocking him out. Summer and her cameraman arrive, and she thinks she spots the robber in a nearby alley, but when she gives chase, she ends up coming across a group of mob thugs, well-dressed by the way, beating up a vagrant. They go after her, but she runs into a well-dressed blonde guy who makes short work of the mobsters. He and Summer make googly eyes at each other before he has to run off, but he drops a rose that was attached to his jacket in the process. The next night, Batman meets up with the robber at another robbery, and although he's able to land several punches, the robber is still able to quickly take Batman down, but not before the Dark Knight is able to slip a bat tracer on him. Later, Summer gets a call at her, at her desk, inviting her to meet up with the mystery man for dinner. But before she arrives, Batman shows up and hauls the guy out of the restaurant via bat rope. See, he was wearing the same tracer that Batman put on the robber earlier, and since they look nothing alike, Batman figures he must be dealing with Clayface. Using Sonics, Batman is able to take Clayface down, but not before Summer arrives and realizes that her mystery man was Clayface all along. Meanwhile, on her desk, the rose she found earlier turns into dried up clay and crumbles to pieces. Now this is what I'm talking about. A great little Batman story that could have easily been an episode of the show. The mystery was set up very well, but was kind of given away by the cover. Well, depending on how closely you look at the cover. You see the guy, you see Summer, you see Batman. But it's kind of in the shadows, and most of the shadow is obscured by the title, by the comic title. So it's possible you could have looked past it. Or maybe it's just, you might have just thought it was just a random monster. I kind of figured it out before I read it, but I'm not usually good at these things. So I could have just gotten lucky there. The art was really great in this issue. Batman looked much more on model. Summer looks more like a Parabek character than her model sheet, but that's kind of what we're going to get used to in this. Basically, if you can see their face, it's more of a Parabek face than a animated series Bruce Tim type face. It's just a, a, a art style, unfortunately. Uh, so it happens with other artists later on. It's a thing. However, I will say that she still fits in the animated style, so I can look past it. I kind of feel bad for Summer, though, in this issue. It looks like she finally found love, only for it to literally crumble to dust. But we don't hear about that anymore, because we're moving on to Batman Avengers number 9, which had a release date of May 4th, 1993, and a cover date of June 1993. And in May 1993, this is the month where... Looks like Bloodline starts up in the annuals. Yay. Guy Gardner takes on Last Son of Krypton. The Funeral for a Friend storyline is coll is collected in a trade. The Reign of the Superman continues. And this is also the month where Batman gets his back broken by Bane in Batman 497. But we're not talking about that version of Batman. We're talking about the animated Batman. And the title of the story is The Little Red Book. Written by Kelly Puckett. Penciled by Mike Parabek. Inked by Rick Perchette. Lettered by Tim Harkins, colored by Rick Taylor, and edited by Scott Peterson. I'm going to pretty much be saying that every issue. Anyway, moving in. 
This issue begins with Batman trying to get his hands on a red book that several mobsters are intent on keeping from him. A fight and chase ensue, which leads to the waterfront, where one of the mobsters is able to throw the book into the harbor. An indeterminate amount of time later, police divers recover the book, but the water has made the book useless. Gordon explains that it was basically a ledger that would have allowed him to finally put Rupert Thorne in jail, and now it is lost. But Batman hasn't given up yet. Later that night, or maybe the next night, it's hard to tell, Batman sneaks on Thorne's estate and makes his way into the mansion, methodically taking out guards and making his way further inside. But Thorne is expecting him, and when Batman demands to know where the backup copy of the ledger is, he points out that it is currently in a car heading for somewhere safe. Quickly using Thorne as a hostage to get his men to drop their guns, then using him as a counterweight so he can catapult himself out of a top story window, Batman manages to get to the Batmobile and catch up to the car. Using the Batmobile's grapple, he's able to stop the car, take care of Thorne's men, and retrieve the book. Later at the trial, Harvey Dent appears to be enjoying reading the book out loud to the jury, which Gordon figures, thanks to his money, Rupert has already bought, but he enjoys watching him squirm in his seat. I will say, this issue starts off with a POV splash page on page one. And while it is supposed to show us what Batman is seeing, and is kind of a cool idea, it looks like the mask is about a foot or further away from Batman's face, because you can see the entire interior of the mask. And I'm thinking that if the mask was up against his face, you'd see very little actual mask around the eyes. Again, though, I'd say 75 to 80% of the story is told through the art, with very limited dialogue, and Parabek does very well with it. It does uh, read, or it does read very much like an episode of the animated series where they didn't always use a lot of dialogue, just mostly the animation, sound effects, stuff like that, and of course the music. My favorite bit of the art in this issue is the top panel from page 18. Not only is it a very dramatic image of Batman bursting through a window with his face in silhouette, or his face is in shadow, but the eyes, of course, are, glow, are basically glowing white, and there's this dramatic, um, lightning flashing behind him but it's also a very familiar image because it was used in a lot of advertisements for the book both uh i, saw, I remember seeing it at the back of the original volume one collection of batman adventures from back in the day and they also used it back in the uh, remember the early 90s they used to still have the hodgepodge ad page uh, but usually the bottom third that they would reserve for some kind of house ad and they would use this image for the as the part of the house ad for the this book. The art is very much on model for the most part here. Judging by the sudden upgrade, I'm not sure if it's just Parabek getting a handle on it or Burchett taking more of a hand at it. Although once again, Rick Taylor has given Gordon gray hair rather than white. I really shouldn't complain about it anymore, but it bugs me. He has white hair on the show. I don't know what makes him think he's got gray hair, but whatever. But that's going to do it for the first three issues. I'm going to, before I take a break, I am going to mention our special magazine. Superman Batman Magazine number one came out. I'm not exactly sure of the release date other than it happened in June of 1993 with a cover date of summer 1993. Now, this magazine was aimed squarely at kids. And most of it focuses kind of on an animated version of the DCU. But for the most part, outside of the Batman comic that appears inside, basically this is all regular DCU. Uh, each issue has several articles and 
um, an inter- maybe an interview or two, and then at least two comic stories. They're usually short, five to six pages maybe, and usually one of them's Batman, done by the Batman Adventures team. And then the other one is up for grabs, but also done by at least the the Batman Adventures art team. The colorist isn't always Rick Taylor. The letterer is not always Tim Harkins. But it's Paraback and Burchett on the art just about every time, except for in the final issue, I believe. And then the writer is usually someone tied to the main comic that the of the character in question. So let me go over what was in this issue real quick. Okay, so first off, we have a wraparound cover that also... Is part of the fold-out inside, I think. I don't have the issue. I'm looking at a scan, so I'm not 100% sure how this works. But anyway, it is drawn by Ty Templeton, very much in the Bruce Tim style. Batman is pretty much on model, a little chunkier, much like he was in the first three issues of the series. Then, of course, we've got other heroes like Superman still sporting his short hair because this is June of 93. He hasn't uh, made his full return yet with the long hair. Wonder Woman, Captain America, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan still, and others. And then, of course, that's on the wraparound cover part. And then on the fold-out part, we get several of the supervillains. Lex Luthor's represented in uh, on a billboard, and it's the long red hair Amish beard Lex Luthor II, uh, plus Joker, Penguin, several Batman villains, and then a few of the other villains. Basically, they all have their then-current costumes, but are kind of drawn in the animated style. Then the issue starts off with a message from the Batcave. Well, actually, technically, the issue starts off with the table of contents. But then we get the message from the Batcave, which is essentially, you see Batman sitting at the Bat computer typing. And it's essentially an email. Uh, Robin has sent Batman an email telling him about the first issue of the magazine and telling him about the stuff that's in it. While it doesn't have page numbers, it's basically the same as the table of contents. And then at the bottom, it's basically Batman saying, okay, I'll check it out. Right after that, we get the Daily Planet Sunday Supplement with with really short little articles. It's like two pages, Uh, but with short articles. There's one article about a $900 pair of glasses that you can watch TV on, kind of like VR, but it actually comes with a TV tuner you put on your belt. It looks really clumsy and ugly, but... I mean, basically, this is early 90s tech. Um, Yeah. We get an article about the superhero science exhibit at the Oregon Museum Museum of Science and History. An article explaining sky caps. Remember those? Uh, I actually have those. They actually came with the book set that I got, which had Adventures 500 and then the four main titles introducing the four different supermen. It came with uh, the sky caps on a card. Never used them. Uh, they only came out of the, off of that card because one of my siblings got their hands on it. There's an article about boogie boarding. Not about any one partic- particular person, just the art of boogie boarding. An article about a new device to help spacewalking astronauts, which I don't even know if it, ha- if it actually ever came into existence. Uh, an article about boomerangs, because I guess maz- mainly because Batman uses batterings. I don't, I'm not 100% sure why they did that. And then a story that's basically about a choose-your-own-adventure type movie. Uh, you have scenes that happen. You have a push-button thing in your chair. and You can decide which characters show up and what scenes happen next. That kind of It's interesting. Anyway, uh, but then we get Penguin's Puns and Bad Jokes. Now, I'm not going to put you through that. Needless to say, first off, these are kid jokes. These are for kids. And second, they very much hurt. And then we get 
a six-page origin of Superman, written by Carl Kessel, with art by Parabek and Burchett, uh, colored by Tim Hart, uh, no, by Tim McCraw, and lettered by Albert de Guzman. Uh, since we're still three years away from Super from Superman's animated show, this is very much just the post-crisis Superman story, complete with the John Byrne version of the rocket with the Earth Matrix in it. It basically only gets as far as him as Clark revealing his identity to Lois, and then it just kind of ends. I guess they didn't want to end it on the downer of him dying, which makes sense. You know, it's kind of a down note. But, you know, there's still there were still a few things that happened after that, so it's kind of interesting that they kind of skipped over it. But, you know, whatever. It, it's not a bad it's not a bad little story, and seeing Parabek's version of several burn panels, because the first part is basically him redrawing burn panels, but in more animated style. It's pretty interesting. Then we get the origin of Batman. And it's by the regular Batman Adventures team. Puckett, Parabek, Burchett, Harkins, Taylor. Now, to this point, we have not really seen the origin on the show. So it's kind of hard to tell what the what version they might be using here. Uh, I think this is just kind of with the post-crisis Batman origin. But they have to deviate from year one a little bit because... The story starts with the bat crashing into the study. And in the kids' magazine, in the animated style, they can't really show that scene from year one where Bruce is basically sitting in a chair bleeding out when the bat busts in. So he's reading a book. Anyway, so the bat comes in. While he's dodging the bat, we get flashbacks to the mugging going wrong, the guy running off while he's kneeling down next to his dead parents. You never actually see the gun fire. They do kind of the like animated series type deal where you just see them the rea the bodies kind of getting hit in shadow and you see the gun but it's not going off at all uh but then you see him making the graveside vow that he will fight crime then you see him doing all of his training in fighting in meditation stuff and in you know uh, criminal science and then we come back to the present. Bruce sees the bat sitting on top of the, a bust of Thomas Wayne. And he gets the idea that if he's going to scare criminals, he needs to become a Batman. So the final page is a beautiful full-page splash image of Batman at the top of a building, battering in hand, cape whipping behind him, ready to go into action. Then we get a hero file about Wonder Woman. And the art here looks like it's by Kevin Nolan. I mean, there's no credit for it. It looks like it's by Kevin Nolan, but using a slightly more cartoony animated style. Doesn't match Bruce Timm's style at all, but be due to the lack of detailing and some of the... How do I want to say it? Uh, exaggeration on some of the art. It just looks a little more cartoony. It's not bad. I actually kind of like it. Uh, let's see. Then we get a text story by Denny O'Neill. Uh, where Robin basically teaches Huntress about some breathing techniques that he uses to stay calm all the time. Uh, there are two small images accompanying this story. One is Robin swinging in to meet up with Huntress, and the other one of the two of them basically meditating. Uh, it's interesting here. Uh, obviously, the Huntress is in her hunt her regular Huntress costume. Uh, this is drawn by Mike Parabek. I don't know if Burchett is inking. It's hard to tell. It, they're really small. Uh, but... Huntress is definitely in her outfit. Robin is in the Tim Drake outfit. Well, let me put it this way. Robin actually looks like he's in the Dick Grayson animated series Robin outfit, complete with the 
huge R that just looks like a regular R, not that stylized one that Tim wears. But unlike, the, but more like the comic book version, it's got the little pouch things on the gloves and the sleeves like Tim's has. So it's a weird combination. I'm not sure what they were going for. I don't know if the pouches were added to make it more regular universe. While, but uh, very, but basically, if you read the story, you can tell that this is very much in the regular DC universe, not the animated universe. Uh, anyway, the next interview we get is with Superman from Beyond the Grave, but with Roger Stern providing Superman's dialogue, so it's very authentic. And then the issue ends with an interview with Mike Carlin, which gives a brief rundown of his career up to this point, plus uh, sets up a little bit of a tease for the new Reign of the Superman story arc that is just starting. And that's going to do it for the first half of the, of the episode, so I'm going to take a quick break, uh, play a promo or two, and when I come back, we'll check out the next three issues. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike... There are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium? You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year 3. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, when Batman fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? All right, Batman Adventures number 10 was released on June 1st, 1993 and had a cover date of July 1993. 
This was the month where Superboy finally met Supergirl. I'm sorry, not Superboy met Supergirl. Legends was released in trade paperback. We get more of the Bloodlines annuals. Flash, the Barry Allen Flash is revealed to be the revert, Zoom the Reverse Flash, and we have the finale of the Return of Barry Allen arc. Gotham continues to reel from the breaking of the Batman, and we also get Jean-Paul Valley's first time in the Bat costume, uh, the official Bat costume instead of the not-so-official one he wore earlier on in the series. Uh, we have our first su Superman confrontation with Man with Man of Steel taking on Last Son of Krypton. Uh, Batman the Sword of Azrael was put into trade. Batman Grindle, part one of its first release. This is also the month where uh, Cyborg Superman reveals that he's the bad guy. Uh, takes out Last Son of Krypton and meets up with Mongol. And then also takes, out, takes down Superboy. And we also get Jean-Paul Valley's first night out as the Batman. Okay, so... Oh yeah, and Metamorpho has a first issue of his miniseries came out this month. The title of this issue of Batman is The Last Riddler Story. Then this is basically by the same art and writing team. At Gotham Airport, Batman manages to stop Mastermind and his men from stealing some rare jewels bound for the Gotham Museum, despite Mastermind's meticulous by-the-second plan. This probably means that his friends Mr. Nice and the Professor are also going to try for the jewels, so Batman promises to keep an eye on them for the next few nights, despite the fact that the Riddler is about to be released from prison the next morning. Speaking of the next morning, and my squeak, Riddler's henchmen are outside the prison gates to surprise him, but he surprises them instead by announcing that he's quitting. They manage to convince him to give it one more try, because Batman gets hit, hit in the head a lot, so maybe he's a lot dumber. So he vows that if this doesn't work, he's quitting. For good. That night, Mr. Nice makes a move for the jewels, but Batman manages to stop him just as a sky-riding plane writes out the Riddler's new riddle. The next morning, Riddler enjoys a nice walk through the city while listening to the citizens come up with incorrect answers and having trouble figuring out his riddle. In the Batcave, Batman admits to Alfred that he doesn't know the answer either, and he hasn't had time to really give it much thought. For now, he's going to go with what he knows, namely that the Professor will probably go out to the jewels tonight, so he'll go with what he's got and hope he gets lucky. That night, Batman arrives in time to stop the Professor and his goon, but while they're busy, Riddler and his men sneak in, steal the jewels, and leave. By the time Batman finally takes down the goon, Riddler has already made his way outside. Fortunately, they don't get far, and the toss of the Batarang relieves Riddler of the jewels. While Riddler mopes about Batman stopping him yet again, and meaning the end of Riddler's career, Batman takes out all of his men, and when Batman confesses that he never actually solved the riddle, not that he didn't have time to solve it, just that he didn't do it, Riddler figures that he's won, and basically sings Happy Days Are Here Again, all the way from his arrest, to his heading to prison, to his, I'm guessing his arraignment, or at least his trial, and all the way back to prison. Now, this one I've got a few more notes on, this one's a little more special to me. I've read this probably more than any issue of this series ever, and that was because this is the first issue I actually bought of this series off the newsstand back in 1993, and I still have the issue. It's not in great shape, but I still have it. I bought it at Walden Books back in 1993, and it really holds a special spot in my heart. And I remember being impressed by the art way back then because it looked just like the show, and I could easily hear the voice cast reading all the dialogue. It was really cool back then. It's still cool now, but as a not-quite-13-year-old, it was pretty cool to me. Mastermind, Mr. Nice, and the Professor are caricatures 
basically, of then DC editors Mike Carlin, Archie Goodwin, and, D- and Denny O'Neill, respectively. Carlin was in charge of the Superman books, as I mentioned earlier, uh, which had to be meticulously planned out well in advance in order for multiple titles to flow from one to the other, like a never-ending battle, plus to fit in special miniseries and one-shot stories that might kind of fill in some of the gaps. So that kind of works for the whole mastermind thing. Archie Goodwin was kind of known as one of the nicest editors, but he could also be pretty tough if he needed to be. Uh, so that kind of works for him. And then, uh, O'Neill was partially noted. I'm kind of reading into this one. Uh, partially he's noted for bringing more of a cerebralism. Is that a word? Cerebral quality to Batman when he was writing it in the early late sixties and early seventies, uh, by having a more of a thinking Batman than just one that works with his fists. So we have the professor do- not basically just thinking, not really doing much fight. It doesn't do any fighting, actually. But he knows how to fight. He keeps telling his goon what moves to make. But it could also have something to do with being a parody of his editorial style. Just, you know, kind of telling everyone else what to do and then they go do it. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I've got the Carlin one down, though. Uh, the story hits a bit of a snag for me on two different levels, though. For one thing, by this point, we have not seen Riddler using a gang at all. Uh, he showed up in his first appearance in the show. If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? He's by himself. And then when he returns again for uh, where he traps Gordon in the computer simulation, basically, uh, he's by himself on that too. So the fact that he's got a quote-unquote gang is kind of weird. Also, he acts a little out of character Despite the mention of his video game, he acts more like uh, the comic book version of Riddler, which isn't a bad thing, but it doesn't really fit the style of the story we're we're reading here. So, you know, what can I say? Also, um, I do like that his men look like the Three Stooges plus one because they have four of them. The The fourth one, now, three of them definitely look like Larry, Moe, and Curly. But one of them... The, the fourth one doesn't really look like Shimp. And I tried looking them up, and there have been other Stooges, obviously, because due to passing away and stuff. Uh, but doesn't really look like any of them either. So it's kind of just a random-looking thug with big muscles. They all are huge with big muscles, by the way. Uh, another gripe I have is pretty much about how long it takes for Batman to take down the Professor's Goon. Earlier in, the, in this issue, plus previous issues... Plus, earlier in this issue, we saw Batman take down multiple guys very quickly. Later on, by the end of the issue, he takes down all of the Riddler's guys in a quick hurry. For some reason, he has trouble taking down this this one guy kind of in the dark by himself. He's a short man, overweight, should have been breathing hard. Having trouble getting tired quickly, I don't understand. I think the only thing I could think of is somehow the professor telling the guy how to fight was somehow actually keeping it, keeping the fight going. Also, it was for the need of plot so that the Riddler and his guys had time to come in, steal the jewels, and get out. So however you want to look at it. Uh, something we'll see, something we saw back in the, a couple, actually, I forgot to mention it, uh, something we've seen in the last issue or two plus in that story in the batman or superman batman magazine and then we see it here we'll see it again the next issue uh 
Parabek has a problem with Bruce's hair. Uh, I mean, he has hair. But you know how when Dick becomes Robin, he goes from that slick back Clark Kent style hair to that kind of rough uh, sticking out wherever hair? Uh, Bruce has that hair. I call it Robin hair. And for some reason, they've given Bruce that hairstyle. Not just when he's taking off, has just taken off his cowl and is in the Batcave, but also, you know, when he's just out and about as Bruce Wayne. That gets tamed down later on, but I just thought it was interesting to point out for now. But overall, I think it's pretty amazing that Puckett was able to introduce three new villains that never appeared on the show, have never been in any of the regular Batman comic books. But he also not only introduced the three new villains, but also used an established one fairly well, but even if it wasn't really the show version. And yet, this issue did not seem crammed or rushed at all. Yeah, there was a bit more dialogue in this issue than last time, but that's okay. And uh, I thought it all seemed to flow very well, so I have no problem with it. Uh, moving right along, though, we get to Batman Adventures number 11, which had a release date of July 6th, 1993, and a cover date of August 1993. This was the month uh, where uh, Mike Par- not Mike Par- Mike Waringo takes over art duties on The Flash, and Alan Davis takes over as cover artist on The Flash, and it looks beautiful. I'm a big Alan Davis fan. Legend of the Dark Knight hits its 50th issue. Jean-Paul Valli debuts his Gauntlet Claws as Batman. Superman, the real steel deal, makes his return in Superman number 81. And he's going to team up with Man of Steel and Superboy and secretly Supergirl to go to Engine City and take down the Cyborg and Mongol. Uh, Everything gets set up in the other Batman books for the end of Nightfall. Uh, the issue ends with the Jean-Paul Valley Batman about to take on, about to confront Bane. Meanwhile, over in the animated book, we have The Beast Within by the usual creative team. Our issue begins with Dr. Kirk Langstrom getting shot in the neck with a dart by a man who casts a shadow. And that's all we know about him so far. Elsewhere, his wife Francine is accepting an award on his behalf when Man-Bat flies by. Fortunately, Bruce is in attendance, so he's able to get away for a quick change and swing into action as Batman. Meanwhile, Man-Bat is causing a commotion, and Batman is able to land on his back. But rather than being able to subdue the creature, he ends up getting slammed into a billboard and watches as Man-Bat flies away. Later, Francine arrives back at Kirk's lab, only to find him unconscious, with no shirt, ripped pants, and laying in a puddle of some kind of yellow liquid. Hopefully, it's not what I think it is. Before she can get him to wake up, though... Batman arrives and takes him into custody. Later at police headquarters, Kirk tells Batman that he doesn't remember making or taking the Man-Bat formula. Even later, Dr. Stephen Perry, who looks a lot like Langstrom except for the black mustache and he combs his hair better, he shows up for a visit and about 15 minutes later or so, uh, Man-Bat flies out carrying the doctor. Roughly 16 hours later, Langstrom wakes up at Perry's mansion. Apparently, when Perry came to, they were 10 miles outside of Gotham City limits, and Langstrom was unconscious again. But he promises to help Kirk bring him into the Man-Bat formula, so he brought him back to his house. And as Kirk drifts back to sleep, we see that Perry has a familiar-looking dart gun, which he later pulls on Batman when he finds the Dark Knight lurking in his lab. Batman has figured out Perry's involvement in all this, and is about to bring him into things when Langstrom bur- bursts in to give himself up. 
Then, Perry confesses that he transformed into the Man Bat after waiting for 10 years for a chance to get back at Langstrom for winning a scholarship that was rightfully his. Uh, at revenge against Langstrom for winning a scholarship that was rightfully his. Then he transforms again, taking Batman out through a window with him. Batman manages to get Bat Man Bat down to the ground, but before Batman can administer the antidote, Francine shows up and slams her car into Batman, sending him flying. Man Bat is about to attack her when Kirk shows up, confusing his wife to no end. Fortunately, just as he starts to lose, Batman shows up again and manages to get Man Bat down long enough to administer the antidote and bring an end to this adventure. Man, I have no complaints about this story. I, I, I didn't find it quite as gripping or exciting as the Riddler issue, but it's still a well-told story that you could see happening on the animated series. It's got a proper mystery, perfect characterization, good misdirection, and a good bit of action. Parabek's art is great, despite Bruce still having the Robin hair. And I think the only problem I have is that this opens the door for more, for more Man Bats to show up, but they never do. I don't even remember if we see any more Man Bat on the show by this point. I think he only shows up for two episodes and does not return when they do the new adventures. So, yeah. Moving along to our final issue for the episode. Batman Adventures number 12 came out on August 3rd, 1993, just a couple just a few weeks before my 13th birthday. Uh, and it had a cover date of September 1993, which means this is your back to school issue. Uh, in this month, a traitor amidst the dark stars is revealed. The bloodline stuff continues. The fourth issue of Commandy at Earth's End comes out uh, showing off Superman. Batman 500 comes out both in the regular and super duper edition, revealing Batman with a brand new costume for the 90s, complete with spikes and claws and shininess. Oh, and extra pouches. Because it's the 90s. The Batman Venom trade came out this month, just in time for, ba for Bane to go away for a little while. Flash teams up with Nightwing and, and um, Starfire in The Flash. Superman returns for good in Superman number 82, complete, fully recharged on his powers and in his new costume. The costume's the same, basically, but it's a darker blue now than it used to be. Also, his hair's longer. It's not a mullet, most of the time. But of course, my favorite issue of that is Adventures 505, where he comes back, uh, finally gets to be with Lois, take a shower, and uh, kind of do a day in the life type of thing. I'm, I'm a sucker for day in the life type stories. And that's about it. We get, uh, oh, and Robin confronts Jean-Paul Valley in the Batcave, setting up the new Robin series, which I guess comes out next month. Batman Adventures number 12. The title of this issue, actually, technically, this is Batgirl Adventures number 12, because girl is spray painted over man in the title. The title is Batgirl. Day one by the exact same creative team, except now we've added that we have an assistant editor in Darren Vicenzo. Batman is out of town, but that doesn't stop Barbara Gordon from finding his life exciting. Her father talks her down and talks about how dangerous Batman's life is and how he's basically one bullet away from death at any time. Or a foot slip off a building, you know, it's very dangerous. He wouldn't wish it on anyone and does not envy Batman at all. Fortunately, he doesn't see the costume she's planning to wear to her friend Sandy's costume party that evening not knowing that Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn have plans to kidnap Sandy. Soon inside, Barbara, dressed as Batgirl, makes her way through the party looking for Sandy. By the time she finds her, she's already been kidnapped, and Harley and Ivy are taking care of the security officers trying to stop them. 
After they're done, Batgirl surprisingly takes care of both of them fairly easily, then frees Sandy, who doesn't recognize Babs in the costume, and they make their way, uh, make a run for it, but are stopped by Harley with one of the Joker's revolvers that has the really long barrel. I think because of this and the, you know, the kickback, Harley misses and ba manages to only hit Barbara's bat ear, uh, which gives the security guys enough time to come back in and knock out Harley. I guess they've already knocked out Ivy, and then they knock out Batgirl. When she comes to, she realizes that she, Harley, Ivy, and Sandy are all tied up with Catwoman standing over them. See, she's trying to steal a diamond on display one floor, one floor above. Up there, security's really tight. On this floor, not much security. Especially since she replaced all the actual security guards with her own men. With their help, they cut through to the floor above, and Catwoman ma manages to steal the diamond on display. As they leave, Batgirl talks Ivy into using one of her darts to cut at her ropes, and then once free, uses the dart to set off the alarms above. To avoid capture, Catwoman sends her goons down in an elevator to keep the cops busy while she escapes from the roof, but Batgirl manages to get up there first and grabs the diamond from her. To prove that she won't let Catwoman get away with the diamond, she drops it off the side of the building. Enraged, but not wanting to get caught by the police, Catwoman leaves without seeing that Batgirl actually dropped the diamond on the fire escape, so it's safe and sound. Babs meets up with her dad downstairs, having thrown her costume away and telling him that she was away from the action the whole time eating munchies. The story isn't bad, but this time the villains feel more crammed in than they did in the Riddler issue. None of them really get a chance to shine. None of them really get to do much of anything. The art is up to Parabek's usual high standards, but he draws all the females the same. Batgirl and Sandy are college students in their late teens, maybe early 20s, while Catwoman, Harley, and Ivy are, I guess, older. But they all have the same body type, very well-developed, and very real proportions. Unfortunately, the animated style doesn't have much of that. So Batgirl, at least Babs and Sandy, should be shorter and skinnier. I believe uh, Ivy, or no, Harley should, also, should be also. Uh, also, Harley's mask is colored wrong the entire time. It's colored red instead of the usual black. And Harley doesn't have the large, overly expressive eyes in this issue that she has in her actual character model. She's just drawn like a regular female. So that throws things off, too. She just looks off. It kind of looks like just a random person wearing a Harley costume instead of actually Harley herself. Ivy also looks a little off. Harley and Ivy have very stylized looks for their faces. Parabek is drawing both of them with his style of face, and it just doesn't mesh very well. But Harley's or Ivy's hair is also not right either. It just looks like a bunch of hair rather than the style that they have in the show, so it just doesn't she doesn't feel right. Catwoman's okay. Catwoman looks great. I don't know if Parabek gets another shot with Harley, but I know his Ivy will look better next time we see her. But that's going to do it for this episode. So I want to thank you all for listening. I actually did get some feedback since the last episode. But due to the fact that this is uh, about an hour before I do any editing, I decided I'm going to hold that off until next time. So I apologize to Dave McAvaney. I'll get to you next time. So I hope you all have a great two weeks. Uh, hopefully my laptop doesn't die so I can do another episode. And I will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Charlie's GeekCast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com, or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. All images and music heard on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. 
Charlie's Geekcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by Two True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening, and good night. <laughs>